the story is told about a little eight-year-old boy who got lost. He didn't know where he was, and he was sitting on this curb, and a police officer happened upon him and said, son, are you lost? And he said, yeah. And the officer said, well, where do you live? And the boy said, well, I don't know my address. The officer started naming some streets in that town. He started naming some, naming some businesses nearby. He started talking about the landmarks that, that were anywhere near there, and none of them rung a bell. And then the police officer remembered this church right in the middle of town with a very high steeple and a very well-lit cross on top of their steeple. And he said, son, do you live anywhere near that cross? And the boy said, yeah, that's it. Take me to the cross, and I can find my way home from there. Take me to the cross, and I can find my way home from there. Friends, that's why we're gathered here this evening, to make our way to the cross, and from there, to find our way back home. What we're going to do is have two separate meditations around the table, first on the bread, and then we'll reflect and eat together And then we'll have a second meditation around the cup, and then we'll drink together. Let me direct your attention to the gospel according to Luke, as he describes the events of Thursday evening after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet in that amazing display of humility. The gospel of Luke tells us in chapter 22 that Jesus sat down to eat the Passover meal with his disciples one last time. Now remember, the Passover was a very important Jewish holiday. And the thing you need to know about that meal is it was a celebration of the story of Exodus. Now think about that. What was the story of Exodus all about? Just think about it. How would a Jewish person answer that question? A Jewish person would probably say something like this. The Exodus is about how we were enslaved in a foreign land and under a sentence of death. But we took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And a great mediator led us out to set us free, and now we're on our way to the promised land. Now think about that explanation, because their story is our story. Let me say it again. The Exodus is about how we were enslaved in a foreign land and under a sentence of death, but we took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And a great mediator has led us out to set us free. And now we're on our way to the promised land. Their story is our story. This is why at some point during that evening, the rabbi leading the Passover meal, Jesus himself, actually changed the script. And the Gospel of Luke tells us in chapter 22 and verse 19 that he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, we know today in the 21st century what he meant. But back then, this would have been been a significant shock to them that night. They didn't expect this. Everything should go as it's always gone. It's a sacred tradition. And so they would be very puzzled at this point in the evening. 
Because just think about what this says about Jesus' claim to authority for himself here for a moment. Friends, this is a piece of liturgy that had been around for about 1,500 years. It's all laid out for them to practice it in a certain way in the books of Moses, in the Pentateuch. And it's been celebrated that way for over a 1,000 years. And then all of a sudden, Jesus injects himself into it and says, this is actually going to be a celebration about me from now on. Now, to do that, that's either a statement of incredible arrogance or incredible ignorance or maybe incredible blasphemy. There's no other options unless, of course, it was true. Just ask yourself, who has the authority to change such a major piece of the Scripture, the Pentateuch, like that? That's really something, isn't it? That's outrageous. Unless he really was and is who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Christ, the very Son of God. Come to give himself on behalf of sinners. Come to give himself in our place. Come to give himself on behalf of of us. So he says, this is my body, broken and poured out for you. Just notice that phrase, for you. This is where we get the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, where Jesus dies in our place for our sins. We call this the doctrine of penal satisfaction. I think you're aware that that's not a very popular doctrine in our day, in our culture. The idea that a, a loving God could have wrath upon sin, that's very offensive. That's why the scriptures call this the stumbling block of the cross, the offense of the cross. Alfred Jules Ayers said the doctrine of the atonement of the cross was intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Atheist Bertrand Russell said the cross was the doctrine of cruelty. Robert Funk called this doctrine sub-rational and sub-ethical. You see, friends, this is why the Bible says people stumble over the cross. Because here's what these skeptics mean. Are you saying I deserve God's punishment? Are you saying that those of us who have worked our whole lives to improve ourselves and our society are in the same place as those who live lives of filth and depravity? How dare you? Or are you saying that good people in other religions who've lived moral lives, they're lost? How dare you say that? See, the cross is offensive in all sorts of ways. And honestly, if you don't feel that, then maybe you don't really understand it completely either. See, there's a word in the New Testament called propitiation. It means that there must be a satisfaction. There must be an appeasement of God's settled anger towards sin. It doesn't mean that God is petulant or or petty, like a tyrant king that sometimes we see in the realm of humanity. No, God is altogether holy, but he will not tolerate sin. I think if we're honest, we have to admit this does resonate with something inside of us deep down. Maybe we don't always think about it. For example, those of us who are parents, let's let's just imagine you found out that the babysitter you trusted and, and paid for years, you found out that they were abusing your kids. Would we not be angry? 
Would that not be righteous anger? And rightly so. In that way, God is just and perfectly holy, and he has a settled opposition against all sin. And at some point in our lives, we've got to come to grips with that. Let me try to illustrate it this way. One of my favorite books that they had us read way back in high school was called Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. There was a movie that came out to um, you know, cinematically portray that drama as well that was done very well. There's this one scene in that play that, in my opinion, just gives the reader chills. And the scene involves the main character, Willie Loman, who's the salesman, and his son named Biff. And so the dad is Willie, the son is Biff. And Biff's this great athlete who kind of idolizes his father, and the father, father kind of lives his life vicariously through his son. But at one point in the play, Biff, the son, discovers his father in a hotel room with another woman. And the son is shocked, and the woman leaves. And then there's this awful scene where Biff is standing there weeping uncontrollably. If you've seen that, what does the father do? His father puts his arms around his son and says, Now, now, I know you don't understand this right now, but maybe when you're a little older, you'll understand these kinds of things. But Biff is silent, still weeping. And so the dad changes his tactic. He says, Biff, that's it. Okay, get my suitcase, forget about it. I tell you, that's an order. Let's get out of here. And Biff looks at him and says, how could you do this to mama? Get away from me, you phony, you liar. And he runs out of the room. And then the father is just left there, lying on the floor, saying, come back here, come back here or I'll whip you. Come back here or I'll beat you. But the son doesn't come back. But what's so awful about that scene, which sends just violent chills down my spine, is here's Willie Loman, the father, And he's kind of like most of us. He's got his indiscretions. He has ways in which he cuts corners in his life. But all along, he's been making excuses. But up until now, he's been putting his arm around himself, so to speak, saying, that's okay. As you get older, these kind of things happen. But here at this moment, he's absolutely exposed. He's naked, so to speak, and all of his excuses crumble at his feet because he's faced with the eyes of someone who's innocent and pure. And in that moment, all of his self-indulgences and excuses and defenses are ripped away and he's exposed for who he really is. And here's the truth of the scriptures. The reason why that scene is so chilling is because I believe we all know that there's a pair of eyes that are so innocent and pure and so absolutely fair and honest, and just. And we all know, one day, we're going to be forced to look into those eyes. And we also know on that day, the excuses that we use will no longer be relevant. And the things we say to ourselves to justify ourselves, to comfort ourselves, will all fall to the ground as not good enough on that day. And deep down, I think we all know that. Because the scriptures tell us at the end, there's this judgment There's a courtroom, and inside of that courtroom, we stand before pure and innocent eyes that are like fire, and we we will stand there accused and guilty, and we know it. Even now, we may know it. And deep down in places we don't like to think about very often, we wonder, what, if anything, is going to help me on that day? 
That is a nagging question that most of humanity pushes to the back of their consciousness because we don't want to face it. It's so awful, and we suppress that truth because the Bible says one day it will all be brought out into the light. And so here's the question. If that's true, and it is, what hope do you have? The answer to that question, the the solution to that problem is found right here in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. You see, let me lay it out for you theologically. God is holy, and the greatest problem in the whole world and the greatest problem in the Bible is how can God forgive sin and still be just? That is the greatest problem in the whole Bible. In fact, the Scriptures tell us in Proverbs 17, verse 15, anyone who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So, you know, even an earthly judge or any situation where someone justifies someone in their wickedness, that's an abomination to the Lord. That's from a human standpoint. But how much more then, if God is holy and just, is he bound by his own perfect standard? You see the problem? It's so different from our culture's questions, isn't it? See, our culture asks, how could God ever punish sin? The Bible asks this question, how could God ever not punish sin? See, our culture says, how could God ever send anyone to hell? But the scriptures say, how could God ever let anyone into heaven? We have a low view of sin. We have a very anthropocentric worldview. And we misunderstand what the scriptures teach us. Sometimes a pet peeve of mine is when I hear other preachers say, you be glad that God doesn't deal with you justly. And I hear that and I go, what? What? I'm sure you didn't mean to say that, but what you just said was that God's love is unjust. That's blasphemy. Do you understand the problem? God's perfectly just always. Which brings us to a very difficult question. Who was ultimately responsible for the death of Jesus? Who's actually guilty for the death of Christ? Now be careful, because that's not an easy question to answer. If you think it's easy, maybe you don't understand the question. And for that, let me just introduce you to a Greek word, paradidomi, and it's translated, delivered him up. Delivered him up. In the Gospels, it's used several times, several different people are described with this particular verb and groups as well. For example, first it's used of Judas, who delivered him up to the religious leaders. Then it's used of the religious leaders who delivered him up to the Romans. Then it's used of the Romans who delivered him up to be crucified. The Jews, the Gentiles, the betrayer, all of them, or should I say all of us, as we sang earlier Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it makes me tremble. We delivered him up to death. But then the word is also used of God the Father in Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul makes a theological statement about the cross saying it was God the Father who delivered him up. And so when we step back, we see in the sovereignty of God, as it tells us in Acts chapter 2, Jew and Gentile come together to conspire, but they did exactly what God had ordained for them to do. 
Here's my point. The New Testament doesn't teach us that we're saved because the Romans killed Jesus on the cross or because the Jews killed Jesus on the cross. Instead, it teaches us that it was God the Father who had to administer justice. It was God who had been offended. It was God's wrath which had been kindled. Someone had to suffer the judgment and justice and the wrath of God. Have you not read in Isaiah chapter 3, 53, and it pleased the Lord to crush him? That's what Jesus endured in our place for our sins as our substitute. That's what that little phrase means on the screen, for you. That's the answer to the greatest theological problem in the world. How can God be both just and forgive sin? Answer, on the cross, Paul says in Romans 3, our God has become both just and the justifier. The cross is so important. The word paradinomy is used one more time, delivered him up. In Galatians chapter 2, when the Apostle Paul actually uses it of Jesus himself, Galatians 2.20, he loved me and delivered himself up for me. Wow. Remember Jesus said in the Gospel of John, no man takes my life from me, I give it up on my own accord. And Paul says he loved me and delivered himself up for me. Why did he do all of that? For me. This is my body, which is given for you. And so that means the only reason why I have a right to come to this table tonight is because of what he has done for me. And the only reason why you have a right to come to this table tonight is because of what he has done for you. And the only reason why anyone has a right to come to this table is because of what he has done for them. Why did he do this? Answer, he did this for you. For me. For me. Can you say that with me? For me. Yeah. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears and dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. As we approach the bread, I'd like to invite our servers forward at this time, and let's give thanks. Musicians, would you come too? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, when we think about the bread, we remember you gave up your body for us. With such a great substitutionary atonement, with such a great sacrifice, with so great a salvation, what can we say? All we can say is thank you. Amen. As the ushers pass out the bread, we'd invite you to just reflect and join in as we worship together. We'll take them together after they're passed out. For our second meditation, we turn our attention to the cup. As you know, after this, in Luke chapter 22, in verse 20, it says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The scriptures teach us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so that is what this cup is all about.
the shedding of the blood for the forgiveness of sin. We know after this supper, Jesus would be delivered up to face a Jewish trial and then a Roman trial, which would all end up in him being charged and found guilty of blasphemy and sedition against the Roman government. And his first punishment was that he be flogged. If I were to go into some detail about what this meant, some of you might even need to leave the room. It's just too gruesome and bloody. But without getting too gory, this was actually a skill. It was a skill that two Roman centurions would develop as they would learn to swing a whip with a wooden handle about one foot long, leather straps attached to it, which were about six to eight feet long. Tied into those straps were bits of steel, bone, glass, and stone. And what they would do is the soldiers would tie the prisoner with their hands tied together at the top of a post so that their whole body was exposed and flog them, the text tells us, 39 times. The whole goal of flogging was to slowly rip the skin off the prisoner's back and their sides and stomach one lash at a time. This is what Jesus went through. Could you imagine what his back must have looked like after just 10 times? Or 20 times. 39 is just brutal. I think if there was ever a film that captured what this might have been like, it was Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And there was something about that film that both drew me into it but also repelled me at the same time. I wanted to look and not look because the whole thing is troubling, isn't it? And I remember hearing him talk about that part of the film later. And he said, as awful as it was, the real thing was probably much worse than that. And I agree with him. There's just no words. After the flogging, it says that they turn him over to be crucified. Now, I don't know if we truly understand what that's about because the cross for us is so sanitized. For us, it's a piece of jewelry or a tattoo or it's a a wooden ornament hanging on the wall there. It's just a symbol that we use in our buildings. That's not what it meant back then. Back then, the cross was a symbol of death. The idea behind crucifixion is that the person were to be put to shame publicly. In fact, crosses, sometimes you, see are, are, sometimes you see the prisoner very, very high off the ground. But from my research, what I read is sometimes they were not that high off the ground at all. The prisoner was sometimes just a foot off the ground or just inches off the ground so that the one being put to death could be mocked by those who passed by around them. And if anyone were to ever see this, It would put such a fear in their hearts that they would not, under any circumstances, ever think of crossing the Roman Empire. And again, if I were to explain this fully, it would be just too much, because these men were stretched out on a cross, a spike or a nail driven between the bones of the wrist to hold up the body, a spike through the feet in order to allow the victim to push up on something to breathe. The crucifixion was a horrible way to die. Most often, it was death by suffocation, just very slow suffocation. And all of this is what we remember when we come and drink the cup, that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the great substitutionary atonement, the pedal satisfaction, that he died taking the wrath of God. He was forsaken so that we would not be. 
You see, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you and I can now cry out, my Father, my Father, why have you so loved me? Father, thank you for never leaving me so that we could say, Father, thank you that I will never have to face you as judge. Thank you that I can know and approach you without fear and call you actually Abba, Daddy, a term not of anger or wrath or judgment, but a term of love and endearment and of a father with affection. All of that is made possible because of this cup. And then in Jesus' dying breath, he says something really amazing. It is this phrase, it is finished. It is finished. Now, what was finished? He was finished. His life was finished. His suffering was finished. No. The, the other second Greek word I want to teach you tonight is tetelestai. Translated, it is finished. It's a, it's a rich theological term. Actually, it was an accounting term that has been found on the bottom of ancient papyrus receipts in Egypt, indicating that the account had been paid in full. It is finished. Tetelestai. As the song says, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. It is finished. In fact, if you want to be meticulous about your accounting, technically, I would make the argument that it was not only a payment, that it was actually an overpayment. This is the perfect son of God, the flawless, spotless lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He's infinitely precious. It would be like, let's say, if I came to you and I had owed you a hundred bucks, and I say, I'm ready to pay you back. Here's a million. Keep the change. That's why the death of Christ is so powerful. It's an overpayment. That's why the writer to the Hebrews keeps saying, How much more? How much more? How much more? How much more? How much more then? If in the old covenant the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer could cover their sins each year, how much more then would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? How much more? How much more? How much more? How much more? It was an overpayment. Because back in the old covenant when they would offer sacrifices, the whole sacrifice would burn up. That's because the judgment was always greater than the sacrifice. Do you remember that story of Elijah when he made the sacrifice and he was competing against the prophets of Baal and he poured water all over that altar? And then the fiery judgment of God comes down and burns up that sacrifice and even consumes all the water and licks up everything? That's because in the Old Testament, the judgment was always greater than the sacrifice. But in the New Covenant, after all of God's wrath is poured out on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega himself, the sacrifice remains. Jesus is still there, and he cries out, it is finished, because in the New Covenant, the sacrifice was actually greater than the judgment. That's why it says mercy triumphs over judgment. It is finished. It is finished. He said that for our benefit so that we would know our sins are paid for. 
This phrase, it is finished, is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. And it reminds me of something. It reminds me of when I was four years old. And I lived in this neighborhood. And we used to play as kids. Back then, they used to let kids just play outside in the streets and stuff. We used to play out there. And we'd play hide and seek. And we'd play like till mom called us for dinner. And when you were a kid and the other kids were playing hide-and-seek in the neighborhood, maybe, you were, maybe this happened in your neighborhood too. I don't know. Maybe my neighborhood was weird. But sometimes at the end of the game, the kids who were seeking would just give up because it was too hard. Somebody was up in a tree and they couldn't find them. They, you could never find certain kids because they were so good at this game. And so they wanted to give up and it was time to go home. And so the person seeking and looking would get tired and they would end the game in a certain way. In my neighborhood... There was a certain way we would always end the game. They would tell all the other kids who were hiding that it was safe to come out, and there was only one way that they could communicate that it was safe to come out. They would scream this one phrase in a very, very loud voice. Ali, Ali, oxen free! And if you were hiding, you won, man. It was like safe to come out. You could breathe a sigh of relief. The game was over. Nobody was coming to get you anymore. And whenever I see this phrase in the New Testament, it is finished. That's what I think of. It's safe now. It's over. There is no more judgment for those who have faith in Christ. It is finished. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong And perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And so that's what we remember as we drink the cup. And when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. It's not because of my righteousness. It's because of his righteousness. When the Jews would bring their sacrifice to the temple, the priest would examine the lamb, not the person bringing the lamb. If the priest starts examining the person bringing the lamb, what are you looking at me for? Look at the lamb. Of course I'm guilty. That's why I'm here. In that way, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's give thanks for the cup.